Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. An early Christmas present for some kids. The lead starts right now. Breaking today in the fight against COVID, the FDA this afternoon giving the okay for 16 and 17-year-olds to get a booster shot as most parents still seemingly have concerns about their kids getting shot number one. Strong jobs numbers that we have not seen since the year man landed on the moon for the first time, but why aren't the hard numbers matching the hard times so many are feeling? And... She was in the car when the police officer pulled the trigger. Just kept saying Dante, like Dante, like just say something, please, like just talk to me. Dante Wright's girlfriend takes the stand today. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with the health lead. It is official. 16 and 17-year-olds can now get Pfizer's COVID vaccine booster late this afternoon. The CDC director gave the final thumbs up, insisting that those minors not only can, but should get a third shot. This is a significant move as more data reveals just how effective boosters are against the virus and the new Omicron variant. Out of the 200 million Americans who have been fully vaccinated, Only about 49 million have gotten their booster shot. That's about a quarter of those eligible, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports for us now. President Biden is right now meeting with his coronavirus team, discussing the threat from the Omicron variant and discussing how to get more Americans boosted as cases, hospitalizations and deaths nationwide are tragically going back up. After the winter, you're either going to be vaccinated recovering from COVID, or dead. Those words said first about Germany now playing out in the United States with COVID cases again surging across the country and hitting the unvaccinated the hardest. Right now we are still losing more than 1,000 people a day, 1,000 people a day dying from from COVID, and it's not from Omicron, it's from the Delta variant. Uh, And it's important that people get vaccinated. Delta is ravaging the Northeast, and more than half of all new hospitalizations in the past month have come from the Midwest, especially Michigan and Ohio, which together account for one quarter of those hospitalizations. There is really no more room for at, at this point, and we're doing everything possible to increase that capacity. Maine seeing its own spike, now reaching its record high for hospitalizations and calling up its National Guard to help alleviate the strain on the health care system. New York is also activating its National Guard amid mounting worry about the weeks ahead. We expect to see other areas of the country also light up in the next uh, several weeks. New studies out of Israel show booster shots could be critical. A third shot of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine resulting in 10 times fewer infections and reducing deaths by more than 90 percent, according to those studies. Early data from Pfizer also showing that boosters increase protection against the Omicron variant by about 25 times. Certain features of Omicron 
including its global spread and large number of mutations, suggests it could have a major impact on the course of the pandemic. As it stands now, just about a quarter of vaccinated Americans are boosted. Access to boosters is expanding now to people as young as 16 in the U.S. But new data shows there's a long way to go convincing parents to get even a first shot for their kids, with some citing safety concerns and a lack of information. About 3 in 10 parents now say they will definitely not vaccinate their children. That, according to a new Kaiser Family Foundation survey. Jake, we are hearing more and more every day now about the importance of boosters. The definition of fully vaccinated hasn't changed. Dr. Fauci says that's a matter of when, not if. But we are already seeing some important steps in that direction. Five colleges and universities, including Notre Dame and Syracuse University, already announcing that they are acquiring COVID boosters. Jake. Alexandra Field, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay. More and more studies are confirming that boosters help prevent severe infection, and yet only about a quarter of vaccinated Americans have gotten their booster. You got your booster. I got my booster. Tell viewers why they should get them, too. Well, I mean, part of this uh, may be changing in terms of the definition, as Alexander was just mentioning, uh, this idea that ultimately fully vaccinated might mean three shots. I think that would make a, a big difference. Why, why should they get it? Well, you know, we, we are getting more and more data. Uh, Israel's always sort of given us data a, a few weeks, if not a couple months in advance. So if we take a look at what the impact of boosters has been now up until quite recently, so coming up until the beginning of December, boosters started there at the end of August. Numbers are going up. Now, admittedly, Israel was already doing a pretty good job. So even though the numbers are going up, they were still relatively small. But you see what happened with boosters uh, over the next uh, few months after that. That's cases. If you look at uh, deaths overall, uh, you also saw a significant impact uh, of boosters. Again, overall, their numbers lower than many other parts of the world. But when they started adding in boosters, the numbers came significantly down. That is something that people should pay attention to for sure. And Jake, I will tell you, it does appear that people are paying attention more than they have been. Because as you mentioned, about 25% of the country uh, that's eligible for boosters has gotten them. But you do have a significant percentage that now say they'd be willing to get it. Uh, you know, 37%, I say, I think, uh, say that they would now get it for sure. 19% probably will. And then there's always this 10 to 20, in this case, 18%, the bottom two lines, that are always hesitant. They were hesitant about vaccines in the first place. And some of those same people are now hesitant about boosters. Mm. Uh, Sanjay, now that 16 and 17 year olds are authorized to get the booster shot, not only authorized, but encouraged to do so, do we know what age group might be next and how soon that will happen? Uh, it'll be 12 to 15 year olds next because that's how they sort of uh, looked at the data. They, they, uh, 12 to 15 year olds were, uh, got their EUA for vaccines back on May 10th. So this will be the next population that'll be looked at. They're going to say, look, how are they doing with the existing vaccines? Is there evidence that the vaccine effectiveness is starting to wane? Are there people who are getting sick in that age group who, who, despite having been vaccinated, are still developing severe illness? If those things are true, that's probably going to really direct the FDA's decision on this. What was interesting, Jake, is there was no advisory committee meeting for this emergency use authorization for boosting 16 to 17-year-olds. The FDA just decided to do it based on previous evidence and then what they're seeing uh, with the pandemic. We may see the same thing with 12 to 15-year-olds over the next several weeks. How about for the Moderna and J&J vaccines when it comes to boosters for teens? Uh, 
Well, see, the thing is that Moderna and J&J were only authorized so far for adults. So, you know, with the Pfizer vaccine, you know, younger people could get it. So the next step for Moderna and J&J will be to get the vaccine, the first uh, shots, uh, two for Moderna, one for J&J, get those authorized first for young people. And then it'll be some point down the road where they could potentially get a booster. Sanjay, COVID cases, hospitalizations and deaths are all trending up nationwide, tragically. More than half of all new hospitalizations over the past month have been in Midwestern states, especially in Michigan and Ohio, which together account for nearly a quarter of the new hospitalizations over the past month. Why? Why this region? Well, I mean, p- part of it is that you do see these these um, uh, regional sort of differences, as we've seen throughout the pandemic. Certain parts of the country get hit particularly hard, uh, other places not so much, and then it flips. I mean, we can look at what happened in the South versus the Midwest over the last several months. Where I'm living in the South, uh, that's the orange line. Things got, you know, quite, quite, um, uh, there was a lot of cases increasing sort of in, into the early fall. Midwest not as bad, and now it's sort of changed a bit. I think there's, there's a couple reasons. You still have a large unvaccinated population, for example, in Michigan, more than 40%, I think close to 45%, still unvaccinated. So there's a lot of people who don't probably have at least vaccine-induced immunity. The other thing is it's getting colder. It's People are going indoors more, more chances for the virus to spread. The, the screen you see now is really an important one in terms of a story that's happening in Michigan with hospitalizations. The vast majority of people in the hospital, in the ICU, on ventilators, 88% of them are, are unvaccinated COVID-19 patients. So that's, that's, a, you know, that's obviously a really really concerning number. And that obviously can overwhelm hospital systems. They have a harder time of taking care of patients that aren't even COVID patients. The UK Health and Security Agency says Omicron variant is displaying a significant growth advantage over Delta and that expects Omicron in the UK to account for 50% of all new COVID cases in the next two to four weeks. If we know the early data says Omicron is more mild than Delta, is this really as much of a concern as people might have had maybe two or three weeks ago? If that holds up to be true, Jake, I think that will lower the concern to some extent. But there's two important caveats. As you well know, it takes a few weeks to really see the severity of illness because of these lag times. People may get, a, get exposed. It may take a, you know, several days, even a couple of weeks before they would actually be diagnosed. It could take some time after that for them to develop symptoms. We're really two weeks into this, Jake, in terms of really first identifying Omicron. It may take a couple more weeks to see, are there sick patients out there who are developing illness now, severe illness, that may show up in the hospital over the next couple of weeks? We don't know. The numbers in South Africa, the hospitalization rates kind of went up, and now they're coming back down a bit. Uh, So that that was potentially good news. So I think we're going to need a little bit more time on that, as well as figuring out is this likely to overcome, overtake Delta? Hmm. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Coming up, oh baby, not even a new addition to the family can distract from the growing list of alleged scandals knocking on Boris Johnson's door. Plus, the U.S. economy just did something it has not done since the 1960s. Stay with us. And we're back with our money lead. More good news in the United States economic recovery today. The Labor Department announcing the number of people filing for unemployment benefits hit a 52-year low last week, which President Biden celebrated as, quote, further evidence that our jobs recovery is one of the strongest ever. 
The new data comes on the heels of the U.S. largest bank predicting a full economic recovery in 2022. Meanwhile, as CNN's Caitlin Collins report, Biden also focused on another major theme of his presidency today, preserving democracy, not just in the U.S., but around the world. The White House touting another promising economic sign. People are better positioned today to deal with these challenges, which are real and which are tough. Jobless numbers hitting a 52-year low, according to the Labor Department. President Biden keeping his focus abroad, hoping to rally the world's democracies with a two-day summit at the White House. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, can at times be fragile, but it also is inherently resilient. Biden bringing together over 100 nations virtually, but the guest list is raising questions about the definition of democracy. Some, including Pakistan, the Philippines, and Poland, hardly seem to qualify, while others with similar records of repression were left off the list. Yes, democracy is hard. We all know that. Biden facing unsurprising backlash from the likes of Russia and China, especially after infuriating Beijing with an invitation to Taiwan. Democracy needs champions. Biden also speaking with Ukrainian President Zelensky today following his tense conversation with President Putin amid fears of a Russian invasion and as the final elements of a $60 million U.S. security package arrive in Ukraine. President Biden is also intending to, was intending to discuss his deep concerns with Russia's buildup on Ukraine's borders. In between calls with world leaders, the president paying tribute on Capitol Hill to the late Republican Senator Bob Dole, who died Sunday at the age of 98. He did have great wit. They once asked him, why in God's name did he vote to continue to fund Amtrak? He said, because if he didn't, Biden would stay overnight and cause more trouble. I commuted every day. <laughs> and Jake, we're learning a few more details about how long that call went between Biden and the Ukrainian president. It lasted just over an hour, though the White House did not reveal any kind of request that the Ukrainians made. We are expecting to get a full readout from the White House, Jake. And we should note, they still say they don't believe that Putin has made a decision about whether or not to invade Ukraine. Caitlin Collins, again, thank you so much. Uh, let's discuss this with CNN Global Economics Analyst Rana Faruhar. Rana. So weekly claims for unemployment benefits hit a 52-year low today. Um, How big a deal is this? Do you think that this is a sign of things to come? I do. You know, um, labor has power right now, and that's the first time in about a half a century, too. The, The labor market is incredibly tight. We've talked about that before. And it's getting tighter at the holiday season, particularly in the retail sector, Uh, Anything that has to do with getting presents to your house, um, supply chains, those are going to be tight. Um, Companies are trying to hang on to the workers that they have. uh, And this is going to be, I think, good news for labor markets and thus for consumption. Because, of course, America, uh, our economy is 70 percent consumer spending. J.P. Morgan Chase is predicting a return to normal next year. Its chief uh, global market strategist wrote to clients, quote, Our view is that 2022 will be the year of a full global recovery, an end of the global pandemic, and a return to normal conditions we had prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, unquote. Do you share that optimism, or is it too early for that? You know, you you never want to say never when it comes to COVID, but um, I think that if we don't hear anything more um, worrisome about the new variant, then yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the fact that you're seeing Pfizer... Um, come out and say, you know, if you've got three shots, you've got pretty good protection. That's great news. That's exactly what the market wanted to hear. 
it has always been all about the virus. Um, now, you know, we, we have this staying at home thing down. We're going to have to be doing a little bit more of it, probably. Certainly overseas they will, but we know how to do it now. So unless we hear something else that really blows that story out of the water, I think it is going to be a good year. Another positive economic sign that the cost of gasoline continues to drop. The average price per gallon in November was $3.39. The Biden administration now, predicting that will fall to $3.01 in January, we, we should note that is still well above prices a year ago. So when do you think, looking at inflation writ large, gasoline, groceries, pretty much everything else will return to pre-pandemic price levels? Well, you know, we might see, um, cheeringly, at the holiday season, a little bit of a price decline, in part because of the point I made earlier, that we're going to be staying home because of the variant. There is, you know, I'm seeing parties canceled. Some of the offices that had wanted to bring people back are saying, no, let's wait till January. Let's wait till the end of the first quarter. Um, So that's going to make travel and tourism decline. That means energy prices are going to go down. Gas prices are going to go down. Um, I think companies are really getting their act together on supply chains. And as long as we don't see more major delays there, that's going to be good news for inflation. It means that some of those bottlenecks might decrease. You alluded to this earlier. How much of the economic recovery depends on what we learn about the Omicron variant or the potential for, for new variants to emerge? It's all about the virus. It's always been all about the virus for the last two years. As long as we don't get any more bad news, we're going to be in a good uh, situation, I think, for the first quarter at least. Rana Farrar, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Texts, emails, phone conversations, what Trump's former chief of staff turned over to the January 6th committee before he sued them. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming today is revealing that the January 6th committee has now interviewed nearly 300 witnesses in its investigation into the Capitol insurrection. Cheney also tweeted, quote, do not be misled. President Trump is trying to hide what happened on January 6th and to delay and obstruct. We will not let that happen. The truth will come out. A source is also telling CNN the context of the text messages, emails and phone conversations voluntarily handed over by Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. CNN's Jamie Gangel is learning these new details. And Jamie, the panel's getting a real glimpse into who knew what in real time as the Capitol was under attack. Absolutely. And this is important because they want to know what Donald Trump was doing in real time. So for context, Meadows handed over more than 6,000 pages of documents, including emails, texts, phone calls from his personal phone and email. And we are told that in those emails and texts are real time exchanges with a wide variety of people while he is sitting there in the White House with Donald Trump. Uh, We're told that in the texts and and emails, there is information about what Donald Trump is doing and what he's not doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this was all voluntary, no claim of privilege. I think it's fair to say Donald Trump is not going to be happy about (laughs) these texts and emails. And we're also learning that interviews with the committee have really picked up in recent weeks. Absolutely. So what have we heard about? We've heard about all the people who are defying the committee, all the all the Trump loyalists. But a source close to the committee has told me that behind the scenes, there's sort of two tracks here. There's what's going on in public, what's going on in private. So we know that Congresswoman Liz Cheney said today that they have interviewed nearly 300 witnesses and that they have many witnesses coming in 
every week, uh, sometimes multiple a day. And today was such a day. Who did we see come in today? We had Chris Krebs, the cybersecurity chief, Cash Patel, who is chief of staff, to uh, then acting defense secretary Chris Miller. We had, I'm missing one. Ali Alexander. Ali Alexander, who was a rally organizer. And finally, a very important person who has been, I would say, dodging the committee. And that's John Eastman, the conservative lawyer who came up with this far-fetched memo uh, which Trump was using to try to pressure Pence to delay the vote. We don't know what he said. Some of these meetings are still going on, but they're showing up. And we've heard some from committee members about their work, talking publicly about it. But you're learning there's also a lot, a lot happening behind the scenes. Absolutely. So in addition to what we've seen today, I am told that they're, they are getting so many people coming in to cooperate that they can barely keep up with it in a certain way. Some of these people are coming in voluntarily. Uh, we thought there were about 40 subpoenas out there. I was told by this source that there are many, many more subpoenas and that some people are coming in with what they call a friendly subpoena, something to give them cover to say, I had to go in. Interesting. Jamie Gangel, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria of Virginia. She's on the select committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. Congresswoman, thanks so much for joining us. So let's start with Mark Meadows and the sheer number of emails and texts and cell phone records he turned over before he turned around and then refused to cooperate. At this point, do you even need his deposition, given all the information he willingly turned over? What I would say, uh, Jake, is there's a huge amount of information. Um, and if, if I were in Mark Meadows' shoes, I think that you know it would benefit him greatly to be able to show up, explain it, explain the context, explain the interrelated uh, nature of these communications and what was happening um, as these were, were sent. So that's definitely information that will be valuable to the committee. Um, but we've already gotten to work analyzing this huge amount of information and trying to piece it together with what we've heard from other witnesses who, um, as you mentioned earlier, there have been hundreds uh, who've come before the committee now in addition to thousands and thousands of documents. What do the 6,000 pages of documents reveal? What's the most surprising thing that's in there? Well, Jake, at this point, uh, I am not going to speak on specifics within those documents, but I'll say that they came from the person who was the closest to the president, who understood his thinking during these events, um, and can tell us what he knew, what he didn't know, what he did, what he didn't do during that time. Um, So they're definitely some of the most valuable um, as far as painting that picture that the committee has received to date. So Meadows is now suing the committee. Last night, uh, he talked about the documents he handed over. Take a listen. I think what they will find is, is that no one in the White House had any advanced knowledge of anything that uh, was going to happen on that particular day in terms of a breach of security on January 6th. Now, we know Meadows gave your committee a January 5th email, which mentions having the National Guard on standby. At this point, have you seen any evidence that Trump or anyone affiliated with Trump at the White House or outside the White House knew that the violence at the Capitol was possible? Well, Jake, I was in D.C. that day. Many of us were in D.C. that day. We understand that, you know, the National Guard was in place to control traffic so that the Capitol Police and and Metropolitan Police uh, could be free and readily available um, for for duties around the Capitol. Um, You know, we had seen other protests like this uh, 
earlier in the year turned turned violent. So I think all of us knew we didn't have our staffs come in in full that day. I had one key staff member with me. Um, so there had been a proven potential for these types of demonstrations to turn violent. So you know, I think it was obvious to, to many um, that something like this you know, could go in this direction, but certainly not to the extent that we saw on January 6th, and certainly not the breach of the Capitol, and certainly not the attempt to, to stop uh, the proceedings of the, the government. But, um, you know, we've talked to hundreds of other witnesses as well, and I'll tell you that, you know, Mark Meadows uh, may have his opinion, but there's, there's many others who are in communications, even in the data that he gave us in those texts and emails, um, you know, that are, that are painting a very full picture of, of what people knew ahead uh, of January 6th. So there's, you know, obviously you're correct that there was always the, the potential for it to get violent. I guess what I'm wondering is, have you seen any evidence that that was the point of it, that they, that they knew and wanted that anybody affiliated with Trump or the White House or, or the, the campaign or any of these groups associated with Trump, that they wanted people to come and the express purpose was to send them into the Capitol to stop the counting of electoral votes uh, including uh, under the threat of violence, that that was why they did it, not just that, it, that, that violence could have broken out, but that that was the, the, the whole point of it. Well, you know, Jake, I'll reflect back to kind of the hashtag um, and the, the nomenclature used for the stop the steal. Um, over months and months and months, there was a repeated drumbeat of, you know, saying although not true, um, that the election was stolen. We have to stop the steal. We know the president's own remarks given on the stage just down the street from here, um, you know, right before the events of January 6th. So that's what the committee's trying to piece together. I'm not going to give any predetermined uh, result of all of the information that we are collecting and, and will synthesize over the course of the investigation. But that's that you are going for the key point. That is what we are looking for, is to try to understand truly if that's the case, to find the evidence, to hear from witnesses, and to hear from people who if they were, were involved in that exact type of um, attempt to disrupt the government. Congresswoman Luria, uh, indulge me if you will. Stand by. We have some breaking news that you'll want to hear, and I want to get your reaction to former President Trump has just suffered a major loss in his battle to keep documents from his presidency secret from the House Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection. Let's get straight to CNN's Jessica Schneider. Jessica, tell us what you're learning. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jake. This is the second court loss for the former president in his efforts to block the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th from getting those White House records. The D.C. Uh, appellate court here has ruled against the former president, saying that he cannot, in fact, block those records from being handed over from the National Archives to the committee. This was a three-judge panel that actually heard these arguments just one week ago. It was November 30th. They're issuing a pretty quick ruling here. This is a 68-page decision. They're saying that the former president loses in his arguments, but crucially here, they're not going to allow these records to be automatically released. They are giving the former president's legal team 14 days now to appeal to the Supreme Court, which no doubt they will likely do. We still haven't heard any comment from the former president's legal team here. But I just want to read one part. It says that the president has, uh, the former president actually, has failed to establish a likelihood of success given the fact that President Biden carefully reasoned and determined that the claim of executive privilege was not in the interest of the United States. And Jake, that is the big issue here that the former president has repeatedly lost on. The fact that President Biden has not asserted executive privilege over these documents 
documents. The former president trying to argue that his uh, rights to assert this executive privilege should take precedent over the current president. But the appeals court here, this three-judge panel saying that no, President Biden gets to make the determination. He has said those records should be handed over, and that is the determination from the court today. But of course, this fight will likely go to the Supreme Court, Jake, so it's probably not over just yet. Indeed. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Congresswoman Luria, let me bring you back. So you're on the January 6th uh, committee. I-, I think that the odds that uh, President Trump, former President Trump, is going to appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, I think there's no question he will, that he, he will definitely do this. Are you concerned about this case going to the Supreme Court where there is a, a conservative supermajority of, of a sort? Well, Jake, I I think that this decision shows um, exactly what President Biden um, said from the beginning, that this is truly in the national interest um, and that overrides everything else for these documents to be made available to this very important investigation. So, you know, as we move forward, I I can't predict uh, the actions of the court, but, you know, I think that what we would be likely to see from the Supreme Court is that all of the judicial rulings leading up to this point um, have substantiated that these documents are necessary and that President Trump is the former president. He doesn't have a right to executive privilege over these documents. That resides with the current sitting president uh, who has made the decision that these documents are releasable to the committee for the work for a legislative purpose. And I expect to see that continue to be upheld. But of course, President Trump, former President Trump, is using every delay tactic in the book, an intimidation tactic, as we've seen. Uh, Mark Meadows has now you know, withdrawn his cooperation from the committee. He's sued the committee, yet he's provided us thousands of pages of documents. So you know, it, it appears that President Trump's sort of uh, hold on this and attempt to keep this information from getting out, it, it's waning quickly, and the committee is getting so much information. Uh, we've heard from almost 300 witnesses. Yeah, and, and some of those witnesses are individuals who... Um, probably know a lot. Uh, you, you, we mentioned earlier, Jamie Gangel uh, m- mentioned uh, Ali Alexander, who was the head of the quote-unquote Stop the Steal organization, or at least associated with it, uh, Cash Patel. Are any of these very, very strong pro-Trump partisans behind the scenes cooperating exactly as you want them to? The answer is yes. There are hundreds of people, some whose names are known well because they're in the news, some who were very close uh, to those same people who are well known, who saw a lot, who heard a lot, who understand all the events of that day and the, and the things leading up to January 6th, who were doing their constitutional duty. They're subpoenaed to appear before Congress to provide information for the good of the American people, and they're doing just that, um, and they're doing it without hesitation. And it's the very few rare uh, number that you can see us moving forward with to hold in contempt. And there's a lot of people who've seen others be held in contempt, and they've come back to the committee and said, I don't want to be that guy. Um, that's not me. I'm an honorable American, um, and I want to share the information that I need to share with the U.S. Congress. All right, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria, Virginia, thank you so much for your time. Coming up next, emotional testimony in the trial of the former cop accused of killing Dante Wright as Wright's girlfriend, who was there that day, takes the stand. I just put my hands over his chest and I just tried to hold it and I was just trying to scream his name. In our national lead, a second day of emotional testimony in the trial of the former Minneapolis police officer who fatally shot Dante Wright during a traffic stop, claiming she mistook her gun for her taser. CNN's Adrian Broadus is live for us outside the Minneapolis courthouse. And Adrian, today prosecutors called Wright's girlfriend who was in the car with him during the shooting. What did she have to say? 
Jake, a painful testimony from the woman who was dating Wright, although brief. She said they'd only been dating for about three weeks. She took us inside the vehicle Wright was driving, that white Buick. We heard what happened from her lens. She talked about what she saw, what she heard, and she described how she tried to render aid. Listen in. Yeah, it was a video call. She's asking what happened. I, just, I know I was delirious. I was just screaming like they just shot him. They shot him. And then I pointed the camera on him. And I'm so sorry. And I did that. I'm sorry. And she's also describing the moment Wright's mother called her via FaceTime and she showed Wright's mother, her son, slumped over in the vehicle. And she was pretty distraught throughout and regretful for sharing the news with Wright's mother in the manner in which she did. Jake? Adriana, one of the other officers on the scene during the shooting testified today. What, what did that officer say to the jury? That's an officer with the Brooklyn Center Police Department. He talked about the training that you need to become a field officer, that type of training Potter was doing that day. He also said he responded to the initial call placed by Officer Lucky. And he says when he was showing up, he saw the vehicle Wright was driving collide with another vehicle, but he had no idea there was an officer involved shooting. So when he saw that vehicle collide, he stopped his car, he got out of his car with his gun drawn, yelling at Wright, who was unresponsive in the other vehicle, and his girlfriend, who you just heard from, telling them to exit the vehicle. She responded saying she can't. And we also saw some body camera video and we hear how he learns Wright had been shot. And I also want to mention another officer from a neighboring district who responded, just testified. He knew there was a shooting, but he didn't know it was an officer involved shooting. Jake. All right, Adrian brought us in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks so much. He's making a list and checking it twice. But right now, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson somehow keeps landing on the naughty list. Stay with us. In our world lead, a rather dodgy week for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson with two new investigations into government staff Christmas parties held during the countrywide lockdown last year, as he coincidentally just announced new COVID lockdown measures to stem the spread of the Omicron variant. And just to put a perfect little bow on it, the Prime Minister's Conservative Party was just slapped with a fine for improper disclosure around the renovation of Boris Johnson's apartment. Joining us now from outside 10 Downing Street is CNN's Europe editor Nina Dos Santos. Nina, do we know if Johnson attended these parties? Hi, Jake. Well, we know that three parties are being investigated, and we believe that one of them back at the end of November that was held here at the Prime Minister's offices and official residences in Downing Street was not only attended by Boris Johnson, but he actually made a speech at it. Now, these gatherings, of course, weren't happening this time when we've got another wave of COVID taking place, although Christmas parties are technically still permitted, even though just this week the government revised upwards its COVID restrictions once more. They were happening this time last year. 
year. And that was a really important moment in time because COVID was yet again raging across the capital city. Hundreds of people were losing their lives. And repeatedly over this period, many government advisers and ministers took to the airwaves and to social media to stress that it was illegal and that people should not gather and mix together from different households. Nevertheless, there's a scandal brewing about whether or not people actually did that in the most powerful address in the country behind me. Now, there's a sense of anger outside of Downing Street among the broader populace in London uh, that this is essentially a question of hypocrisy, that people are having to deal with a completely different set of rules from the powerful who actually draft those rules. So many questions still for Boris Johnson that will continue over the next few days to come, Jake. And this is obviously one of the most consequential weeks of Boris Johnson's life, and, and it's not just the scandals. There's a new addition to his family? That's right. Another, this time perhaps more joyous region, reason for Boris Johnson to have sleepless nights. Uh, a baby girl was born to him and his third wife, Carrie Johnson, earlier today. Mother and baby is said to be doing well. We haven't seen a picture of the infant yet, although we have seen Boris Johnson arriving at the hospital uh, to potentially uh, meet his new uh, uh, child. We believe that this is his seventh child. He probably was also there for the birth as well. Um, according to a government spokesperson, he will be wanting to spend a bit more time with this new addition to his family, his seventh child so far. He has had a few marriages uh, previously and has grown up children from those two. But will this detract from the scandal? It's unlikely that that's the case. You'll be relieved to hear, though, Jake, that although it is legal this year, the Downing Street Christmas party has been cancelled for now. Jake? <laughs> Nina Dos Santos in London. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Some breaking news. Another major legal loss for President Trump and how it could shed light on understanding his role in the insurrection. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start this hour with our breaking news. Former President Donald Trump suffering a major loss in court just moments ago in his battle to try to keep documents from his presidency secret from the House Committee investigating the Capitol insurrection. The fight now likely heading to the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's get straight to CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider. And Jessica, what did these judges, these appellate court judges, say about the former president's argument? Well, they basically said that the former president can't assert the privilege because the current president doesn't assert the privilege. And here, really, the current president's uh, privilege takes precedence over a former president. And that was the same argument and the same opinion that we heard from the lower court at the district level. Today, these three judges agreeing and saying that the president, the former president, Trump here, cannot block these records from the National Archives from going to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. And they rested much of their opinion on what has been repeated by the Biden administration as a reason for not asserting the privilege here, saying that it was the unique and extraordinary circumstances surrounding January 6th that demands that these records should be turned over. I'll read you one line from the 68-page opinion here saying the president of the United States and Congress have each made the judgment that access to this subset of presidential communication records is necessary to address a matter 
of great constitutional moment for the republic. So they went on to say that the former president gave no reason to really uh, subvert that decision from the current president here. Uh, this is a decision that came actually pretty quickly. The appeals court here in D.C. heard these arguments last Tuesday. They issued this opinion today, but crucially, they did say that they will provide a two-week window for the f former president's legal team to fight this decision, to go up to the Supreme Court. They could potentially also ask for the appeals court here to hear this argument again, to have the full court, all the judges hear this argument. So these documents will not be handed directly over to the committee. The former president's legal team still has a two-week window here to fight this. But, Jake, this is yet another loss for the former president, a second court now ruling that he cannot block these records from being handed over to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Jake? All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's bring in former assistant U.S. Attorney Kim Whaley. And Kim, what's your reaction to the argument you heard the appeals court make, basically, that, that Trump cannot claim a privilege that the current president... Biden has waived. Right. So the Article 2 of the Constitution creates one office of the presidency. The baton gets handed from person to person. Uh, Donald Trump's no longer president. The president is Joe Biden. Joe Biden has, in this moment, the discretion and the authority to decide what to do about things like executive privilege. Jake, Donald Trump seems to continue to uh, misunderstand what the nature and role is of the president of the United States, which is to, to work on behalf of the people. These records Congress has established by statute don't belong to even a single president, uh, don't belong to the White House or the government, they belong to the people. And that's really what's boiling down, it's boiling down to here. This court is saying, we have to think about why, what's the need for these. The need is so the people can understand what happened at Jan on January 6th. And Donald Trump is stuck up, is stuck in, still stuck with this notion that he is somehow special. Um, and it also, I think, elevates this narrative, this false narrative that that he is is the real president. So, uh, you know, that that's unfortunate that this because, frankly, I think it's a really a very weak argument. Is there any scenario where the U.S. Supreme Court, one third of which was appointed by President Trump, uh, would side with him and allow him to keep these records under executive privilege? You know, Jake, if you would ask me that prior to what's happening with abortion, uh, that is in Texas and most recently in the Dobbs case in Mississippi, uh, I would say, you know, it would take moving a mountain. But in this moment, I'm not so confident that this court is not ideological and political anymore. Now, they did do, they did rule against Donald Trump uh, prior to Amy Coney Barrett joining the court on important issues of executive privilege, including his claim that his uh, accounting firm and his his uh, banks and stuff can't respond to third party subpoenas. Uh, responded to subpoenas as third parties because of executive privilege. They knock that down. Um, but there isn't a lot of law around executive privilege. The reason, because presidents act presidential. And I think, you know, the idea behind the Presidential Records Act giving the former president a say, and that is in the statute, um, is not to get into kind of a, a, a tug of war between presidents, but is around probably more like collaboration or if something really personal made its way into a document that a former president would sort of say, hey, hey, let's keep this out. Not this idea that somehow a private citizen supersedes the president who in this moment holds the power of the executive branch until a new president is sworn in. And that's Joe Biden. 
All right, Kim Whaley, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. So let's play this out. Um, there's no chance that Trump's not going to take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, if he loses, as he has with other, other similar cases, what happens? Well, normally I would say he would keep trying. But, you know, the Supreme Court is kind of the buck stops there. So I do think if he goes to the Supreme Court, and I agree that's likely to happen, whatever the Supreme Court decides, I don't know if he's going to have further recourse. But that doesn't mean he and those who are allied with him are going to try other ways to kind of keep these documents from landing in the hands of um, Democrats who want to investigate him. Now, normally, I would say there's a principle at stake here, executive privilege and, and all that. But, I mean, let's just call it what it is. He's trying to hide information about his involvement in January 6th. It's- no, I mean, th- you know, that's obvious. And, and today's ruling by the, by the court, I was just reading through it, could not be clearer on that. And they say what Mr. Trump seeks unanimously, but what Mr. Trump seeks is to have the court intervene and nullify judgments of the president and Congress, delay the committee's work, derail negotiations, period. They make the same point you're making. This court is saying exactly the same thing. Now, I agree with Kim. You can't predict this Supreme Court. I don't know what my friends over here say, but you cannot. What do you think? Well, you may not be able to predict it. Call me an optimist, but I could see a nine to zero ruling with all of the appointees, including those appointed by Trump, coming and, down. And just for the record, that's, you, that's what the Supreme Court dis- decided against Nixon, yes, right? It was right. a unanimous Absolutely. decision that against right. Nixon exactly when he was right. trying to hide you the tapes, only, I think. Right. right. You can only have one, one president at a time. And I think it is pretty well established that it is whoever is in office who exerts that privilege. And we're not just, you know, we're not trying to find out private discussions with his advisors into how he decided a policy issue. This is an investigation into what was the most serious assault on our democracy since the Civil War, in my view. And I think, you know, I think I think we're going to see a Supreme Court that comes down against Donald Trump. Yeah, And as that passage Gloria read sort of suggests, it's because it's a congressional investigation that this court has decided that you can't just that is Biden isn't just two. Joe Biden and Merrick Garland aren't just like, hey, we found some documents here. We're just going to make them public. Right. Right. Congress has asked for them. Uh, And I think this makes people who said, oh, what's the point of that January 6th commission? It can't do anything anyway. Really, I do think shows what the point of it is. Once you have Congress requesting and subpoenaing certain documents from the archives or whoever holds these documents from the previous administration, it changes the character of it. And the president determines and the Justice Department determines they don't want to assert privilege. Congress wants them. The executive branch wants to give them over. Well, why not? And conservatives would say, "Don't get involved." Right. That's a that's you know, the conservative Congress wants position. to do. It's not our job, right? right. That's correct. The, right. the U.S. Supreme position. Court might just refuse to take up the case and just let right. the appellate court ruling stand. Okay. I mean, that's a possibility as well. Right. And I think, but I don't. I guess the what we've been talking about is how the Supreme Court has shifted in a way that we think it may act in a way that's a little bit more partisan than perhaps what we would have expected from the Supreme Court in the past. And I think that's the, you know, that's the question mark here is if there are justices who would like to weigh in on the issue, because the easy thing for them to do is just to let the lower court stand. But are there justices who, for whatever reason, would like to be a little bit more activist on, you know, determining what is the precedent that should be set? And we've seen from what Meadows has turned over, from uh, John Carl's reporting, from CNN's reporting. We've seen there was 
a plan to try to stop the counting of the electoral votes in Congress. I mean, there was one. And I Several. At least on January 6th and, and for a time shortly after that, I think most Republicans in Congress were appalled. Uh, I mean, you know, the speeches that took place uh, on the floor that night uh, were very different than what we're hearing from people like uh, Kevin McCarthy today. So, I, you know, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think the, again, I think the I think Congress, Senate, uh, the, the, the uh, Supreme Court is going to do the right thing. What do you think? You think they're going to do the right thing? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and I don't think they'll simply let the appellate court decision hold. If the president is, if ex-president's personally appealing this, I think they'll want to have their say, and we'll see if it's unanimous or not. But it will be healthy for the country, I think, if they show that they're not simply partisans, honestly. That'd be another good side effect of Trump actually appealing the case. You guys are such optimists. Yeah, once, once a year. <laughs> once a year. It's Christmas. It's December, it's Jake. Nice. Hanukkah, Christmas, yes. you know, season. It's very nice and very Christmassy. Thanks all for being here. I appreciate it. With a big chunk of the Russian military hanging out right over his border, Ukraine's president speaks to President Biden. What is the plan, if any, to handle Vladimir Putin? Plus, big lie loyalists still trying to undermine the 2020 election. CNN tried to track down the man in charge of one of these... That's ahead. In our world lead this afternoon, President Biden spoke with Ukraine's president, fresh off his two-hour call with Russia's president, Putin, earlier this week, all amid fears that Russia is about to invade Ukraine once again. As CNN's Oren Lieberman reports, the U.S. is trying to support Ukraine without putting U.S. boots on the ground. President Joe Biden trying to lower the temperature as tensions soar in Eastern Europe, promising Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky support for his country's sovereignty amid a massive buildup of Russian forces. What we know is that uh, the aggression here is on the Russian side. The military buildup is on the Russian side. Uh, There's a path, a diplomatic path forward. Uh, Part of the president's objective, our president's objective in having the call was to convey that clearly. Russia has amassed 125,000 troops near Ukraine's borders and in Belarus to the north, Ukrainian security sources tell CNN. That includes tanks, ground vehicles and aerial patrols, potentially laying the groundwork for a quick strike and rapid reinforcement, the sources say. On Monday, Biden warned Russian President Vladimir Putin of severe economic sanctions if Russian forces invaded Ukraine, steps the U.S. wasn't ready to take the last time this happened. Since the Russian occupation of Crimea in 2014, the U.S. has given Ukraine more than $2.5 billion to bolster its self-defense. This year alone, that amounts to $450 million, including lethal Javelin anti-tank missiles. Small arms and ammunition from the latest security assistance package are set to arrive this week. And more could be coming if Russia attacks. We would provide additional defensive materiel to the Ukrainians above and beyond that which we are already providing. And we would fortify our NATO allies on the eastern flank with additional capabilities in response to such an escalation. The Ukrainian military also trains alongside U.S. troops. About 150 guardsmen from Florida's Task Force Gator recently arrived in Ukraine, rotating in for the 81st Striker Brigade. The 81st was there for months, working with Ukrainian forces and taking part in September's Rapid Trident exercise. There's been an increase in U.S. diplomacy with European allies and partners in recent weeks to coordinate any response to Russian aggression. 
But the most serious sanctions targeting Russia's energy sector remain a last resort, U.S. officials say, as the White House remains wary of roiling domestic gas prices. A senior NSC official says the White House will not take domestic political considerations into effect if and when it comes to deci- time to decide what sanctions to impose on Russia. But experts warn if you don't impose energy sector sanctions, you may not have the influence required to try to affect Kremlin decision-making. Meanwhile, how important is security assistance when it comes to Ukraine? The White House wanted $250 million. Congress, as of right now, has added $50 million more. Jake? All right, Orrin Lieberman of the Pentagon, thanks so much. Let's go now to CNN's Matthew Chance, who is live for us uh, in Kiev, Ukraine. And Matthew, President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky spoke for about an hour and a half. You're getting some new insight into what the two leaders talked about specifically. Tell us. Yeah, yeah, publicly, of course, the Ukrainians are very grateful for the uh, U.S. leadership on this issue and for President Biden's support for Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. But you know, behind the scenes, you get a sense there's a bit more frustration creeping in. For instance, I've just had a, a briefing from a government official here in Ukraine uh, with knowledge of the call. Um, he, he's spoken to me and he said, look, you know, uh, President Biden did spell out all these very tough sanctions that, that would be imposed on Russia if it were to invade Ukraine. But President Zelensky was less than impressed by that uh, and said actually he didn't believe that prospective sanctions would have the deterrent effect that uh, President Biden thought it, think it might, thought it might have on, on President Putin, because on Russia, because he thinks that Russia would have already factored that in. What Ukraine wants to see is upfront sanctions, uh, perhaps with a delayed implementation that could be rolled back if, in the words of this official, uh, Russia uh, behaves itself. There was other frustration expressed as well. Apparently a month ago, there was all this request, there were a lot of requests made by the Ukrainian Defense Ministry of the United States for lethal weapons to help it prosecute its war in the east and to fight off any Russian uh, potential invasion. By the U.S.'s own intelligence assessments, the Ukrainians say, that invasion could come as early as next month. And the weapons that they've requested have still not arrived. I know there have been some weapons uh, sent and expected to arrive this week, but there are more that have been requested that haven't come. Finally, the issue of NATO. Vladimir Putin saying that he wants a stop to NATO expansion eastwards. He does not want Ukraine uh, brought into the Western military alliance. Uh, President Biden told Zelensky on this call, you know, look, you know, it's still up to individual countries to decide uh, whether they join NATO or not. No assurances were given to Vladimir Putin. But he also told Zelensky that he didn't see Ukraine joining the Western military alliance until at least 2030. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance in Kiev, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Let's discuss this all with CNN Global Affairs analyst Susan Glasser and the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Bill Taylor. Uh, Susan, uh, let me start with uh, what we just heard there from Matthew in terms of the Ukrainians behind the scenes being frustrated uh, that the Biden people, the Biden administration is not proposing tough enough sanctions, that they really need to be uh, coming down and doing uh, energy sanctions and if they really want to change the Kremlin's behavior. What's your take? Well, look, I think President Biden has been very uh, uh, wary of escalating further the situation and being drawn into, you know, a kind of tit for tat that Russia seems to want. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin already has alienated the Ukrainians by sending a gigantic army to their borders. Uh, you know, it's a bullying technique uh, in the spring that resulted in in Putin getting the meeting he wanted with Joe Biden. Joe Biden came out of it thinking, well, we're going to have a stable and predictable relationship. That's what he said he wanted. This is obviously not stable and predictable at the moment. The U.S. has very limited tools, in, in all honesty, right now, and uh, is very uh, unwilling, I think. President Biden is very unwilling to, to escalate right now. And uh, what's your take? How 
do you think the Ukrainians uh, are handling this? And, and what is the best way to deter Vladimir Putin from invading and seizing land again in Ukraine? Jake, the Ukrainians will fight hard. Mr. Putin undoubtedly knows that this army, this Ukrainian army that has been fighting his troops uh, for seven and a half years, this is a battle-tested, tough, well-motivated, well-equipped, better-led army than, than Mr. Putin was up against in 2014. And the Ukrainian people, as Susan said, the Ukrainian people are very opposed, very, they hate this idea of the Russian aggression against them. They're beginning to hate the Russians. Um, and, they, and, and this core, there's a core of veterans, of Ukrainian military veterans who have fought in the East, a large core, and they're ready to fight again. They're ready to take up arms again. Mr. Putin, I think, knows that. Um, and so uh, my first answer to your question is Ukrainians themselves are, are, are going to make it very hard. Make it very bloody. The, the sanctions, you know, they're talking about some serious sanctions, as Tony Blinken says, such as you've never seen before. Um, and we know kind of what those could be. They're very disruptive. There's no doubt about that. They will be painful. They will be very painful. And the idea of putting them on now and then taking them off if they don't, I'm, I'm not sure about that. The Ukrainians, of course, are going to be asking for more. More sanctions now, more weapons now. And they should. And they should. They're under attack. They're on the front line. Mm-hmm. So they should be asking for this. Um, but I, my sense is that uh, President Biden is, is, pushing, is pushing hard. And, and Susan, you, you were stationed in Moscow uh, with The Washington Post. Take us inside Putin's thinking. I mean, is there any way to deter him? Well, you know, Jake, this is my point that, that I wanted to make even about right now in President Biden. There are just limited tools. We've been through this with three previous American presidents, right? And you've seen both President George W. Bush with Georgia uh, and President Obama in 2014 with Ukraine all over again. I, there was endless talk in Washington at that time about off ramps and sanctions And, you know, Vladimir Putin is not looking for an off-ramp built by an American president. I think that, you know, he's more than two decades in power now. It's important for people to realize that he believes in some ways that it's his destiny to. He he called the breakup of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He wrote just this summer, essentially, that Ukraine is not a real independent nation and should still be a part of Russia. And I think that informs and shapes his thinking uh, as far as this crisis that he has manufactured. It's just so important for people to understand Ukraine wasn't about to join NATO next week. It's not that Vladimir Putin is reacting to some real uh, crisis here. He's created one uh, in order to get this incredible attention that he now has of the world. And Ambassador Taylor, um, President Biden spoke with the Bucharest Nine today. Uh, It's nine countries that were either part of the Soviet Union or under its sphere of influence that banded together in 2015 after Russia's annexation of Crimea in Ukraine. They're all NATO members. Ukraine is not. How big a deal is uh, that force, the Bucharest Nine, if Russia does decide to invade? So one of the things that they talked about yesterday um, and the day before was the willingness of the United States to provide additional military forces to those nine nations who are on the on the the eastern flank of NATO. And, and uh, they are very likely, if the, if, the, if the Russian tanks 
come across uh, the, the border again into Ukraine, they'll, they'll be moving west. Those nine countries are, are looking at these Russian tanks coming at them. They will ask for additional resources, uh, weapons, uh, equipment, troops from the United States. And Jack Sullivan said they'd probably get a positive response. So I think they are an important group. Uh, they're, they're an important force uh, that is going to be focused on this issue. All right, Ambassador Taylor, Susan Glasser, good to have you both here. Thank you so much. Appreciate your insights coming up. Some breaking news. The jury has reached a verdict in the Jesse Smollett trial. We're going to go live outside the courtroom as soon as it is read. Stay with us. In our politics lead, we're now more than a year removed from the 2020 election. And yet, Donald Trump's big lie, loyalists in one state, they're still at it. This time conducting what is now the fourth review of Wisconsin's election results. It's a partisan effort paid for by taxpayer dollars. Despite the fact that newsflash, Joe Biden won Wisconsin. CNN's Kyung La tried to track down the man in charge of this review. He's a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice who appears to be all in on Trump's big lie. This is what a threat to democracy looks like inside this building in the Milwaukee suburbs. Working behind this tinted doorway is a special counsel of Wisconsin's partisan review of the 2020 election. Hello? Hello? They don't want to talk to reporters. Declining our request for interviews and now dodging my questions on the run. Good evening, sir. The man we're trying to talk to is Michael Gableman, a retired Wisconsin Supreme Court justice appointed by the Republican-controlled legislature to lead an investigation that could cost taxpayers nearly $700,000. To get to the truth of what happened in our 2020 election. Three separate audits, recounts, and court cases have found no evidence of widespread fraud in Wisconsin. But that's not stopping Gableman from moving forward, making bizarre threats like this. Attorney Gableman has asked the court to instruct the sheriff to come and take me to jail. To take you to jail? Yes. Satya Rhodes-Conway is the mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, a Democratic stronghold, one of a number of local officials subpoenaed by the special counsel. Gableman wants to interrogate her in this building away from public view. Because he wants to ask you those questions in private, he is going to seek your arrest? Yes. If it comes down to it and I have to go to jail for democracy, I certainly won't be the first person to have done so. Gableman was hired by Wisconsin Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, pictured here with Donald Trump. Voss tweeted about the top-to-bottom investigation by Justice Michael Gableman. After this tweet, Gableman's investigation expanded. Hi, good morning. We tried to talk to Speaker Voss. We sent in a a request for an interview. His office says Voss had no time this week. We wanted to know why Voss would hire Gableman, who just days after the 2020 election cast doubt on Wisconsin's election results. Our elected leaders have allowed unelected bureaucrats at the Wisconsin Election Commission to steal our vote. Records obtained by American Oversight, a left-leaning watchdog group, show taxpayers paid to fly Gableman to Arizona last summer, where the widely debunked partisan review of Maricopa County's 2020 ballots took place. Then Gableman went to South Dakota to my pillow guy Mike Lindell's cyber symposium, which amounted to a gathering of outlandish conspiracies and election lies. In Wisconsin, Gableman's investigation continues in the dark, 
His only two public appearances before state lawmakers, combative. Stop making things up, Mark. Then why have you your, hired your Mr. Hoyer? Your constituents deserve better. Why so have you hired Mr. Hoyer? Shame on you. Why? Shame on you. Josh Call is Wisconsin's attorney general and fighting the Gableman investigation in court. Is this about 2020 or is this about 2022 and 2024? I think this is really about 2022 and 2024. I mean, I think what we've seen is that even though the insurrection ended, the spirit of the insurrection has remained with us. This is an effort to uh, reduce people's confidence in our election results. Wisconsin Republican State Senator Kathy Bernier, former county clerk, believes elections can always improve, but says what's clear, there's no widespread voter fraud, and it's her party that needs to make that clear. If they don't have confidence in the electoral process, they're not going to come out and vote, and, vo and primarily it's going to harm a Republicans. So it's Republicans, including Donald J. Trump, who need to say, okay, let's stop, let's move forward. The Gableman investigation shows no sign of stopping. Thank Can we you. talk to you about your investigation, hey, have a good night. Or answering to anyone. Uh, bipartisan federal election experts tell CNN that they're very concerned about what's happening here in the state of Wisconsin. They see similar pressure that has been applied in Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, all of these swing states. They believe that this Wisconsin investigation, Jake, is simply the next page in the playbook of the big lie. Jake. All right, Kyung La, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're following the breaking news. The jury has reached a verdict in the trial of former Empire actor, Jussie Smollett were standing by for their decision, plus a new poll suggesting many parents remain reluctant to get their kids vaccinated against COVID-19. We're digging into why that is next. In our health lead, the CDC this afternoon encouraged all 16 and 17-year-olds to get their booster shots after the CDC gave the final thumbs up this afternoon for the teens to get a third dose. But a new survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that most parents in the U.S. still have concerns about how safe COVID vaccines are for children. Let's discuss this with Dr. Chris Purnell, a public health physician, and Andrea Bond, you're a clinical psychologist. Dr. Purnell, let me start with that study. 49% of parents say they did vaccinate their children. 13% say they are taking a wait-and-see approach. 30%, that's 3 in 10, will quote, definitely not get their kids vaccinated. So safety and potential side effects continue to be the most prominent concerns. But this is the most researched and scrutinized vaccine to date. If parents don't have the information they need to trust this vaccine as of now, who do you blame, the government? You know, Jake, this is a difficult one. And this is something that I face in community every day. And I actually would say that parents of children in the 5 to 11 age group are even more skeptical of the safety of the vaccine. And I think it comes from parents being in an environment and atmosphere where at times we've had conflicting messages and that this pandemic has been politicized. And that's very unfortunate. And the best way to break through that is just to be clear and emphatic about what the science shows. Andrea, two-thirds of parents also say they do not want schools to require eligible students to get vaccinated against COVID. Uh, at the heart of this, it seems, is parent frustration with how much the pandemic has taken from our children, at-home learning, no socialization, mask requirements, etc. Um, what do you make of this, of this, uh, of this 
lack of desire for another requirement, even though their kids are required to get vaccines for all sorts of other diseases. Yeah, I think exactly as Dr. Purnell said, there's been so much baggage of misinformation this entire time that it's become such a loaded subject. But there was one optimistic piece of news in that same study that said that when schools themselves encouraged and provided information about access to the vaccine, it actually increased vaccination rates among children. So even though parents clearly are not all for it being a requirement, it does speak to a need for local and state school districts to be able to disseminate information. We know there's so much misinformation out there. And so it's not a surprise that a lot of parents who were skeptical about the vaccine for themselves are saying absolutely not for their children. We need to counteract that misinformation. Dr. Purnell, what sort of resources do you think these parents and kids need to better understand this vaccine and, and so that we can all get past this pandemic? I think we all need to be on the same side of this argument. And what I mean by that, I think healthcare leaders, those in public health or clinical medicine, as well as educators, and as well as families, personal primary care physicians and pediatricians, we all need to say the same message emphatically and clearly. And that is that the safety and the efficacy data is on the side of getting these vaccinations. When I've been before parents, Jake, whether I'm on school grounds or I'm doing it virtually, the more that I'm able to answer those questions and to tease out the misinformation from the fact, to use um, social math or so we say, give them examples of flu versus COVID, and then talk about how this vaccine really is our way in society as beating back this pandemic. You see parents, if you will, thawing to the possibility that maybe I should do this for my kid because we're not going to finally cross the finish line until we have a substantial proportion of all of our population vaccinated. And Andrea, you and I have been talking about the damage this pandemic has caused uh, kids since last year. And there's this new study uh, in JAMA showing there was an almost 66% jump uh, per month in cases of anorexia among girls between the ages of 9 to 18 years in Canada during the first wave of the pandemic. Let's talk about, tell me about your observations of of the toll this has taken on kids, maybe especially on young girls. Yeah, young girls, I think it's so tied up into social media as well, because we've had that recent Instagram data about just how damaging certain aspects of social media can be to girls in particular about body image. And so when you think of one of the things that has happened with the pandemic, it's that our children's and our teenagers' social lives have moved so much more online even than ever before. So any kind of influences in terms of substance abuse, in terms of self-harm, in terms of eating disorders, have only been magnified because that's the only way that a lot of these kids were actually able to interact and that became their life. And we know that the data is damaging. We know that when they're constantly exposed to over-idealized body images or even behavioral techniques about how to do some kind of unhealthy eating behaviors, we know it has real effects. And it's a real concern going forward because I don't think that we can put the genie back into the bottle. These kids are online all the time now. Andrea Bonnier and Dr. Chris Purnell, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. We're following that breaking news. A verdict breached in the trial of former Empire actor Jesse Smollett. We'll bring you that verdict when it's read. Plus, a disturbing trend. Why are so many American cities seeing a record number of homicides? We're going to talk to the Baltimore police commissioner next. In our national lead, homicides 
in a number of American cities are hitting record numbers with three weeks still left to go in 2021. In six major cities, the total number of homicides this year have not only surpassed last year's total, but set a new record. Several more are on track to join that list. An important note here, even though the national murder rate has spiked recently, it is still significantly lower than its peak in the 80s and 90s. But for communities such as Louisville, Kentucky, that's not much consolation. So what am I supposed to do when I'm guiding my son down the right path and he get killed and hurt by senseless violence? Joining us now to discuss what's behind these statistics is Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. He's also president of the Police Executive Research Forum, which works to combat these crime spikes. Commissioner Harrison, thanks for joining us. So you've served in two cities with some of the highest homicide rates in the country, Baltimore and before that, New Orleans. How concerned are you by the numbers we're seeing so far this year? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Jake. Jake, we're very concerned, uh, not just in Baltimore, but most cities are seeing spikes in their gun violence, their non-fatal shooting numbers, and in their homicide numbers. And we're concerned uh, for a number of reasons. What we're seeing and what I'm hearing and what I know to be a fact in Baltimore, by and large, is conflict. While many people think it's drug-related, uh, some of it is, but by and large, I'm hearing from all the other chiefs that are colleagues of mine that it's conflict-related, simple petty beefs, arguments, and retaliations from previous bad acts, which are conflicts also. Uh, and then you had two years, almost two years of no trials, no indictments, no grand juries. Uh, and so there is a either a lack of consequences or the offenders don't fear the consequences. Either one of those is bad, but that's what we're hearing around the country, which we all believe is, is leading to uh, the increase in gun violence. Not to mention the enormous amount of guns that are hitting our streets in record numbers to include ghost guns, which, as you know, can't be traced can be ordered online, purchased with a credit card, even young people are buying them, assemble them in about an hour, and you have a fully functional gun that cannot be traced. When you put all that together, we're, we're seeing spikes in Baltimore, and we're seeing spikes in most major American cities. So one of the things you just said is that because of COVID, uh, the legal system, the justice system has slowed down or stopped at, at times in terms of getting dangerous people off the street. Am, am I hearing you correctly? Well, we're making arrests. Of course, in, that's happening all over the country. In what, but for about 18 months or longer, there were no indictments, there were no grand juries, there were no trials being held. So the offender on the street, while may, may be arrested at times, would sometimes, and this is what they tell us, they don't think that anything's actually being done because there's no demonstration of consequences, consequences being held uh, to these individuals. And so they had continued to offend. And while some of the criminal justice system slowed down, we are now just getting back into a groove of trials, indictments, grand juries, and really beginning to demonstrate to the public that we're holding people accountable, which is the main deterrent factor uh, that we use to deter them from violent crime. So what do your fellow police chiefs all over the country and you, what do you think needs to be done to bring these numbers down other than resuming indictments and, and prison sentences for individuals who have been arrested well, for offenses? We all believe that they have, they, there has to be consequences. Uh, now, hear me, hear me correctly. Not the severity of consequences, but swiftness and the certainty of consequences. When offenders know for a fact that they will be caught and they will be held accountable, swift and certain, that's the best deterrent that there is. So it's not necessarily the severity 
but the swiftness and the certainty. We have to get back into the groove of, number one, having uh, indictments, trials, convictions, sentences. Uh, but the police are out there doing the work. Then there's an issue some, you know, in some parts of the country where, because of uh, you know, bad police community relations, police uh, don't always feel as comfortable in some types of engagement. And we're working to make sure that we can have police not only feel comfortable, but, but, but make sure that we're doing it the right way, in a constitutional way, in a way that builds trust, in a way that builds relationships. But we're working to re-engage our police to make sure that we can keep our community safe. Baltimore Police Commissioner Harrison, thank you so much for joining us as always. We're standing by for a verdict to be read any moment in the trial of actor Jesse Smollett. Stay with us. In our national lead, members of Congress and other dignitaries are paying tribute to Bob Dole right now as he lies in state at the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Just moments ago, Chief Justice Roberts, along with Justices Kagan and Breyer, said their farewells to the late senator. In a ceremony earlier today, congressional leaders praised Dole's character and his decades of public service. President Biden spoke about their friendship and the legacy Dole leaves behind. America has lost one of our greatest patriots. We may follow his wisdom, I hope, and his timeless truth in the sentence. Bob belongs here. He, too, was a giant of our history. And that's not hyperbole. It's real. Senator Bob Dole was a highly decorated World War II hero in 1945, seriously wounded while carrying a fellow soldier to safety while serving in Italy. The wounds left him permanently disabled. Dole was the last of the greatest generation to be a major political party nominee for president. He was 98 years old when he died. The funeral service for Senator Dole is tomorrow morning. Live coverage begins on CNN at 11 a.m. May his memory be a blessing. On Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper, you can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. You can also listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.